The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. This is a, a particular treat for me to have uh, John Peacock here with us today. And um, what can I say about John? John has uh, been both uh, a monastic in both the, the Tibetan and Theravadan traditions is a scholar who translates in more languages than I uh, can recognize. Um, that's probably true. Okay. <laughs> 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 um, and is currently the, what is the senior mentor at, uh, is no, that your title? No, no, I'm, and I'm going to be director of master studies at uh, Oxford University on mindfulness-based cognitive therapy course. So. There we go. <laughs> and um, I guess the uh, I, I guess I'm just going to let John introduce himself and his subject matter, which uh, will become clear shortly. <laughs> well, I hope it'll become clear shortly. <laughs> well, I just want to thank uh, you know, the Sati Center and. Uh, particular Tony for inviting me to come here. It took him a while to get me here, but it's, uh, he's got me here eventually. Um, what am I going to do today with you? Well, to start off, one of the things I want, I'm going to do is be contentious. Yeah. Yes, I want you to kind of engage in a conversation with me. Now, at the start of this procedure, the conversation is going to be rather one-sided because I'm going to be providing you with quite a bit of information. But hopefully as we go through, um, it will develop into much more of an interactive thing. And by the second day, um, tomorrow, I want it to be even more interactive because I really want you to engage with the material. Because in many ways, some of the things what I'm trying to do is to strip a lot of Buddhist teaching of its religiosity. To get it back to something... Perhaps, and I do say perhaps because there's no guarantee of this at all, um, so I'd put the perhaps even in scare quotes, perhaps to something closer to what the Buddha was actually doing. Now part of that really getting back to some kind of origins involves understanding a lot about the Buddha's background. Now I've obviously only got a short amount of time with you, so I can only do a certain amount of that. But one of the things, I think it was even in the little blurb that was written about this weekend, was, of course, that Buddhism does not arise in a vacuum. Nothing comes out of nothing. You know? Unfortunately, when, and this is really actually what started me off on doing this, with, particularly with Dharma groups, because I didn't used to do this with Dharma groups at all years ago. I only used to do this in academic context, particularly when I was teaching Buddhist studies at the University of Bristol was to talk about the, really the Indian civilization background to the way the Buddha taught. But it became increasingly clear to me that A, most Dharma practitioners hadn't got a clue about where Buddhism arose from or how it arose. And how in particular, I think this is a very important element, and I'll come back to this probably tomorrow, but I'm going to hold it out as a promissory note at this point, which is that the Buddha engaged absolutely intensively with his culture. And that's what we need to do with our culture. If Buddhism is to become part of Western culture in its, all of its varieties, you know, North America to Europe and everything else, 
then it's got to engage intensively with our cultures. This is what the Buddha actually did with his own culture. He engaged in this really deep dialectical um, tradition of looking at and critiquing what was going on there. Now, the reason I say this, and I'm just going to say this very briefly at this stage, is if we want Buddhist practice or Buddhist values rather than Buddhism, I actually don't like that word. I mean, what does Buddhism actually mean? It doesn't really mean anything. It was an invention of the Western, Western Academy. It was an invention of academics, primarily. If anything, really what Buddhism means is simply wake-upism. Yeah, that's all it means. You know, actually, that's not too bad. I'd actually prefer wake-upism to Buddhism. <laughs> yeah. So, the Buddha engaged intensively with his culture, and if we want Buddhist values or this thing that we call Buddhism, I can't really dispense with the word, even though I'd like to. Uh, if we want it to be part and parcel of what's going on in, again, this big conversation, which is Western culture, in all of its changes at the moment, in all of its turmoil, if we want it to become that, not what I would call a rarefied hothouse flower that only needs special conditions for its survival, you know, when you buy these, you know, particularly in Northern Europe, when we buy these you know, kind of things from California and we try to grow them in our gardens, they just die. You have to keep them in greenhouses and especially warm conditions for them to survive. Um, and I see that going on actually with a lot of the traditions of Buddhism in the West. Um, I've seen Tibetan Buddhist practitioners who look more Tibetan than Tibetans. <laughs> you know, and Theravadan practitioners who look more Theravadan than most Thais that I know. <laughs> you know. It's something about taking on this other culture rather than engaging with our own. So I'm kind of saying that right at the beginning because in a way that's what we're leading up to via this um, examination of the early Buddhist material. Now, what I'm saying is also, and where I'm speaking from, are the texts of the Nikayas. For those of you not familiar with it, these are the five basic elements of the Pali Canon. Um, Nikayas, or collections, um, pretty arbitrarily arranged, actually. There was no real order to the way that the Pali Canon was arranged. Um, you know, middle-length discourses, long discourses, one connected by topic and one by kind of graduated numbers. And, and then anything else that couldn't be collected in those was bundled into the, the fifth Nikaya called the Kudaka Nikaya. Uh, I have a, in, English, I, in England, I actually call this the sort of Nikaya of odds and sods that they, <laughs> that they couldn't actually put in anything else. Um, so there's a lot of old texts, actually, in this particular Nikaya. So this is where I'm speaking from. So it's going back to these texts. Again, something I'd like to say right at the very outset, what we have in this material, uh, the Nikaya material, some of it which is very, very ancient, none of it actually written down in the Buddha's lifetime, as I'm sure many of you will know, um, is an absolute goldmine of material which I think, and this is my own personal view, and hopefully I'll express this with you as I go through, uh, material which has never really been utilised by the traditions. The Theravada tradition, and this was part of the title which is Buddhism before Theravada, the Theravada tradition, let's make it very, very clear, the Theravada tradition as we have it in all of its manifestations in Burma, Thailand, Sri Lanka, Laos, Cambodia, all these places that it went to, is quite a recent product. 
It's a product of the 5th century, basically. This figure called Buddhaghosa, you know, who writes this encyclopedic manual called the Visuddhimagga in Pali, the path of purification or the path to purity. Um, he really is the founder of Theravada as we know it. We know very, very little about what came before. In fact, Theravada is a later appellation. Um, it was also, the, this tradition was called the Vibhajavadins originally, um, which basically is a, a, a tradition of arguers um, who basically went around arguing and, and debating material. And if any of you are familiar with the Abhidharma, you'll find a book in the Abhidharma called the Katavatu, which is the points of controversy. And that is them arguing <laughs> with other Buddhist traditions of that period. However, before we get into this, let's take you right back. Let's go right back to ancient India at the time of the Buddha. Ancient India at the time of the Buddha is a time of change. Well, you'd expect that, wouldn't you, given that's one of the Buddha's basic teachings. Um, but it's changing. It's a society which is in turmoil. It's changing from basically republican states into more centralized power monarchical figures. Um, it's going from an agrarian rural economy into a centralized city economy at this point in time. So we have a culture which is in turmoil, it's in ferment, um, and much of this is reflected if you go through the canon. Um, if you go through the canon, you'll find that there is, you know, there is interactions between uh, the Koslans and the Vajians and all of these different groups which are there, all vying for power, all vying for territory. Now, all of this comes to fruition in the 3rd century BCE, when, of course, Ashoka unites most of northern India, and actually most of India. And he's the largest unifier of the Indian subcontinent under one rule up until the Mughals in the 17th century. So he's the person who brings it all together. Now, one of the things perhaps I ought to say at this stage is, actually, Ashoka probably isn't that far off from the Buddha's death. Now, recent scholarly evidence does not put the Buddha's date of death as about 483, which is the classic dating, which is dated actually on a Sri Lankan text um, called the Mahavansa. And there is absolutely no reason why we should date the Buddha's death at this point at all, based on this ancient chronicle, um, because it's more of a mythology anyway. The Buddha's death is probably, and it's been very forcibly argued, and anybody who wants the kind of references to the stuff at the end, please come and see me about it. It's been dated more, his death has been dated more around 400 BCE. You know, so it puts him much closer to the Ashokan period than ever before. There were probably people in um, the Ashokan period who either met the Buddha or knew people who did in that period. So, the culture is in ferment, and one of the big actual aspects of the ferment that was going in in northern Indian culture at this time was religious. Now, I hesitate to use that word because 
Actually, this is again another Western word. And if there's anything I'd like to do, is actually reform all of the words we use in Buddhism. Because actually hardly any of them actually ever mean what the Pali terms mean, uh, or the Sanskrit terms mean. Um, they were invented by Pali scholars in the 19th century, and they cannot be really um, blamed for it, because they were drawing only the, on the culture they knew, which was obviously Christianity or Judeo-Christianity, and they drew upon and derived their vocabulary primarily from that. So most of the classic vocabulary we have that translates Buddhist terms is wrong. I wouldn't even say just partially wrong, sometimes just completely wrong. And it gives a very misleading perception of what Buddhism was at this early stage. And it makes it look, and this is the reason why I'm saying this, it makes it look religious. Now, religion in that sense, of the sense that we have of it in the West, isn't really what they have in India and in the Indian subcontinent even to this day in many aspects. So, for example, most Western religions, or you know, particularly the Middle Eastern religions, would be described primarily as orthodoxies. You know, they're about what you subscribe to in belief systems. You know, so, a classic example, and I don't want to point the finger at any particular religious tradition, but I'm just using this as an example. A classic example is the Christian catechism. The Christian catechism tells it what, what it is to be a Christian. So you subscribe to a set of propositions which you believe in. And most religious traditions in that sense are exactly that. They're about particular propositions which are subscribed to as a belief system. And that is really what marks you out as a member of that church or that religious organization. Whereas actually in India what we have are not orthodoxies but orthopraxis or orthopraxies. They're about what you do rather than what you believe. So, for example, Hindus even today are more defined by what they do than by what they believe. And if any of you have ever been to India, I don't know if you have, but if you've ever been to India, you will know that if you meet, for example, a Hindu from South India and accept what they say about Hinduism, and then go to northern India and look at what's going on there and talk to Hindus in northern India, you'll think of them as being almost completely different religious traditions. They will not look the same at all. And actually, being a Hindu is about, and this is where I want to get to to really start what I'm saying, is about what you do. That is what marks you. So actually, Hindus from north and south have very, very different belief systems. And I actually had a Hindu say to me once when I was doing some research out in India. Um, I asked him what he believed. He said, believe? What's that got to do with it? <laughs> you know, you know I'm marked out as being Hindu by what I do. Do I perform my rituals, my, my religious rituals, my rites that I have to do? And if you go back into ancient Indian society, this is the very origin of not Hinduism, because actually, and again, I often see this wrongly attributed to the time of the Buddha, Hinduism did not exist at the time of the Buddha. What did exist at the time of the Buddha is something called Brahmanism. Brahmanism 
is literally the religion of the highest class of Indian society, the Brahmins. Now, the Brahmins were traditionally scholars and priests. This is what they did. This was their job description as being part of that class. And more effectively, what they referred to themselves as, as did three of the other classes of Indians. Whoops, I'm going to lose this, I think. Actually, I perhaps just hold it while I'm doing this. That they referred to themselves as Arya. I don't know if everybody can see that. This word, which in Pali and Sanskrit, Aryan, which is the more f- familiar to most people, Sanskrit, the Sanskritic term, is actually meaning noble. And in fact, this is the way that these people of northern India referred to themselves as noble. And you were noble by being born into a particular race of people. And you were more noble if you happened to be at the top of the pile in Indian society. Um, I'm sure we can think about this in terms of Western societies. We consider those who think themselves noble by literally being born, for example, say in Britain, into the aristocracy. Or being born into a certain moneyed strata of society. They consider themselves somehow above people. So actually this doesn't look so ancient when you look at it. It kind of tends to be a human trait to try and elevate yourself above others in some way or another. Now, early Indians, known as Aryans, um, the Aryan society was basically, in the old kind of story about this, was there were people that originated probably somewhere around the Caucasus and migrated down into northern India, displacing the original population, who now form um, basically the southern Indian population, because the languages of the northern Indians brought with them, the Aryans, were Sanskritic languages. And the languages that uh, basically are a completely different linguistic group in the south of India. These are Dravidian languages. Um, They do not look the same. They do not sound the same at all. They're a completely different linguistic base to them. Pali, by the way, is a northern Indian Sanskritic. It's what's called a Middle Indo-Aryan dialect, if you really want it. (laughs) A Middle Indo-Aryan dialect. Middle defines it in terms of being either early, middle, or late. So Hindi is is a modern Indian dialect, whereas Vedic Sanskrit is an ancient Indian dialect. Pali is a middle Indian, so it grows out of that tradition. So these Aryans had a very highly stratified society. Um... Often people think, and particularly kind of those of us that grew up in the hippie age, uh, tend to had this kind of false premise that India was a country of light and loveliness. <laughs> it wasn't. Ancient India um, was a highly stratified, rigid society, uh, which was stratified into four classes of society, with the Brahmins at the top, um, and the group at the bottom, which um, actually was still within Aryan society, and a group outside of Aryan society, which were known as Chandala. You know, Chandala, which is literally what became the untouchables of northern Indian society, who now form themselves and call themselves Dalits, the oppressed of Indian society. So this 
stratified society, four major classes of society. At the Buddha's time, and one has to get this clear, because again I see this misrepresented, at the Buddha's time this was not caste. This was the class of Indian society. These classes were known as varna. I hope everybody can see this. Varna were the classes of Indian society. And Indian society, even to this day, is organized into Varna classes. Now, caste, by the way, for those who don't know, is a Portuguese word. It's not even an Indian word. It was the first Portuguese settlers who settled in Goa trying to define what was going on in Indian society because they saw these classes, but they also saw all these different trades within these classes. So effectively, let's just give you the four classes. I won't give you all the technical terms for them. The four classes are basically the, the priests and scholars, the rulers and warriors, which actually at the time of the Buddha was the highest class of Indian society, hence the reason why the claim that he was born into a Katya class, the ruler and warrior class of Indian society, Then you have a mercantile class, or wealth generators. And then you have menials, who do all the labouring work in Indian society. And then you have those who are outside the system. And these were probably the indigenous population who were displaced. So that's a snapshot of Indian society. And as I say, lest you think that it's all light and loveliness, there is an injunction in the Vedas, the ancient scriptures of these people, Often that word is used synonymously with this early strata of Indian society. They're called Vedic people, the people of the Vedas. The four classes of Indian society are people of the Vedas. Now, the Vedas are great fun to read. They're not kind of philosophical treatises. Um, Many of them have involved bits of metaphysical speculation, but most of them about very, very practical things. And they're poems, basically. They're often translated as hymns. But they're more poems. And they're so-called revealed texts. They're revealed to seers or rishis um, or kavya, poets. So the poet is like a conduit from the gods who's writing this stuff down, or actually not writing it down at this period, but composing it in the ancient Aryan language of Sanskrit. So Sanskrit becomes the dominating language of Indian society. And the Brahmins in particular hold Sanskrit as their language. And it becomes, as we see through the history of Indian culture, it becomes the basically the lingua franca of intellectuals and rulers in Indian society. Even to this day in contemporary India, if you, you'll find Brahmins still composing poetry in Sanskrit. Um, If you go to Sanskrit drama of the classical period, you'll find all of the rulers and the Brahmins and that speak Sanskrit. All of the ordinary people speak something called Prakrit. And Prakrit means debased language, where Sanskrit means pure language. And by the time it gets written down, the script is known as Devanagari. And Devanagari, the script of the gods. So it's all about elevation. This stratified society, and if I get nothing across to you out of all this, I just want you to hear it, a highly stratified society. No social movement between stratas. Um, 
The idea being basically that you had what was called uh, a place within the society. It was called an ashrama, a place within the society. And you had duties that went with your place within society. So in late Sanskrit texts, such as the Bhagavad Gita, you'll find Krishna in his conversation with Arjuna in the Bhagavad Gita saying things like, it is better to do your duty badly within your own class group than to do another's duty well. So basically, if you're a ruler and a warrior, don't think you can become a priest and a scholar. If you're a menial, don't aspire to be any of the higher classes within Indian society. In fact, this was the very thing that Indian society feared at this time, was that this social cohesion of the stratified society would break down if there was social mobility within the different stratas of Indian society. In fact, there's there's a hymn or poem in the Rig Veda which says if anybody basically sticks their head up to want to be in another strata of society, chop it off. It's that violent. And what Indian society and the Vedas in particular, one of their chief, one of the chief aspects of that um, set of texts is the idea of order within it. And they have this particular term for it, which is called Ritta which is literally the cosmic order. Actually, I don't know if this pen's working very well. Let's see if I can get another one. Yeah, that's better. Ritta. Ritta is the cosmic order. And I think this is based very simply, if you look through the Vedas, and this is, again, I'm just saying, forming the background of the Buddha's world view. If you look around the world, you'll see things have an order to them. And much of, for example, the the poems in the Rig Veda, which is the oldest out of all the Vedas, most of the poems in the Rig Veda are about such things as the sun, the moon, the monsoon, the winds. I always joke about it and say, if you stand still long enough, you get deified in Indian society. So... (laughs) Everything gets deified. Trees and water and wood and fire. You know, um, Agni is fire, which is you know, actually related in Sanskrit to the word to ignite in English. You know, it comes from the same linguistic root. And so everything is deified within Indian society. Everything is stratified. Now, in many ways, one thing that you find that probably is a, is a better side of Indian society at this time is they don't see themselves separated from the cosmos. You know, that society is ordered just as much as, if you like, as the cosmic order of things. So why I said this is probably, a very, uh, probably arrived at from empirical observation is because, actually, if you live in India, as I did for quite a number of years, what you will see is great order to things. Now, with climate change, it's, even, it's less so. But when I was living there, you could literally predict the day on which the monsoon was going to break. And if it didn't, something was very wrong with it. You would know when the cold season... Basically, you have three seasons in India. You you have a cold season, a hot season, and a wet season. And that's it in northern India. And they actually come in in very great regularity, or did up to this point. The sun and the moon, the waxing and waning of both, 
That's very, very regular. Yeah. The wind, this has a regularity to it as well. And so there's a lot of perceived regularities. And this is what um, the ancient people of India were doing, was seeing that there's regularity in nature and the cosmos. And actually there were great stargazers, so they looked at the movement of the stars and the heavens as well. Um, and this is where their astrology started to form out of, out of this particular um, observation. That they perceived that there was this regularity within human society, and this regularity wasn't arbitrary. If you like, it was given. It was part of the cosmic order. And if any of you have ever been perplexed, as I initially was when I first encountered Indian society in its modern form, was why is what we now call the caste system so intractable? You know? Well, it's intractable because it has this long history. It goes back is to this is the order of things. You know? This is not an arbitrary aspect to it. Now, I've given you a snapshot so far, but one other aspect to this stratification of India society is the lower down in society you come, the more impure you become. Now, this is nothing to do with cleanliness. This is nothing to do about, about with how many showers you have a day. You know, this is a metaphysical purity or impurity. You know, so the Brahmins are considered to be both metaphysically pure by birth. Going down, the less pure you become. How are you going to get from one aspect, you know, from the impurity of the lower stratas of society into the highest stratas of society? Well, be a good member of whatever part of society you are, and this is much more later Vedic and Upanishadic thought, and hope that you get a better rebirth in the next life. Yeah. So there's a fatalism to this. You're placed in a particular aspect of society where you are and you're meant to fulfill your duties and become a good member of that, even if it's a good, I don't know, toilet cleaner. You know, that's what you do. Do it well, and then you might get a higher rebirth in this. I hope you're getting a picture of why the Buddha critiqued all this. <laughs> yeah. However, elements of the Buddha's teaching also go back to the idea of order, because... This is very ancient Sanskrit. Ritta is the word that's used in ancient Sanskrit. The word becomes, as the language evolves and changes um, into the classical period and more at the time of the Buddha, it becomes a word you're all very familiar with. It's the word dharma. The word dharma has, well, in Buddhist connotations, it has many different connotations, but the word dharma literally meant law. Yeah. The great first translators of Sanskrit material in India, um, you know, who used to work for the British East India Company in India, and were actually coming from a strata of English society at that point, or British society at that point, which was mostly they were in the judiciary. You know, they were lawyers. The first great trans Sanskrit translator was a judge. And why did they become interested in all this? because they heard dharma being translated as law. That's why they became interested in it. And so this word still has this connotation of law or order going through it. Or, let's come back to the way we hear it more in Buddhist circles, the way things are. 
There is a way to the universe and the way things are. Now this becomes obviously um, changed in the Buddha's hands and formed into something else because he engages with, as you heard me say, every aspect of his society. One of the things he engages with incredibly, and this is something that's very difficult to get if, unless you're you know, looking at the original languages, he engages intensely with the language of Indian society. Now, this order, Rita, how did you keep the order? Well, you did it through ritual, particularly ritual sacrifice. Now, in very ancient India, that would have been animal sacrifice, as it still is in, say, Nepal, in some forms of Hinduism. Um, Nepalese Hinduism still has animal sacrifice within it. Um, probably even the very most ancient forms of Indian society had human sacrifice, usually of those who are outside of Aryan society within it. Now, all of this by the time of the Buddha, the more literal animal sacrifices, there were probably still something going on as well, um, had been transmuted, perhaps, into symbolic sacrifices. And the sacrifices were all done round ritual fires. I don't, is there anybody been into a Hindu temple here? Yeah. Going to a Hindu temple, you always find a, a ritual fire burning, um, which is all the rites of passage are performed around it. So if you go to a Hindu wedding, which is often you know, when you know, sort of non-Hindus most are invited to these things, you will see that the Brahmin priests will sit at the fire and they will make offerings on the fire, particularly things like sesame seed, ghee, clarified butter, uh, coconut. You know, all these things are placed on the fire. And what are they meant to do? They're meant to keep the gods happy. You know, gods in the plural here. Yeah, not with a big G, just with lots of small Gs. These are called devas. Um, what does the thing the Buddha do? The first thing the Buddha do, does is he demotes the devas. You know, the devas are no longer outside of samsara. They're placed within samsara. I'll make that just as a point at this stage. So he doesn't dispense with them. He doesn't dispense with them. He puts them in their place as being part and parcel of samsara. So, ritual. Huge element of Indian society. All of these rituals. Literally, you cannot even, if you're a Brahmin to this day, cannot do anything without doing ritual. And if you happen um, to, I don't know, even have your shadow, a, a shadow of an untouchable cast upon you, you have to go through rituals of purification. Gandhi, when he travelled to South, South Africa and became a lawyer in South Africa in the late 19th century, when he came back to India you know, and to start the movement then brought about Indian independence, um, he had to engage in all sorts of rituals to gain back his class and caste status. Yeah. You know, crossing the black water was something that's this, that basically created impurity. Yeah. So, let me just sum up what I've said so far. Highly stratified society. You know, no social movement. A society that considers itself to be noble by birth. A society that, to keep this order and to keep the order of things within the natural world occurring in the way they are expected to occur, 
um, has ritual at its dom- as its dominant element, yeah? as its dominant element within it. Everything is governed by ritual. This, you know, if you go back to the Rig Veda again and you look at many of these poems in the Rig Veda, you will find that they're devoted to things like may the monsoon arrive on time. You know, some of these poems. You know, may I have a male child? That will give you a skew of how Indian society was skewed. You know, may I have a male child, not a female child? You know, it was a very patriarchal society. And women basically had the status of slaves in Indian society. Yeah. They are not like Hindu women to this day, who have elements of power within, within the patriarchy. Uh, women were considered to be chattels. It was a male-dominated society. Now, all I've given you so far is just a little picture of Indian society. Perhaps one other element I ought to add in is the whole purpose of living this way of living and performing the rituals and to engage in keeping the order within society. And that, I always think this, um, anybody being contemporary India, I always think this is very amusing because you know, ancient India had this absolute horror of chaos. Yet you go into an Indian city <laughs> and it's complete chaos, usually, in the modern world. But the whole purpose of all this was to live well. Yeah, that's what it was, to live well. The, I'm not going to write this up on the board because I think you'll just hear it, how it comes out. Because the Sanskrit for living well is suastika. <laughs> yeah, that's the Sanskrit. The word which actually for not living well is duastika. That little word do comes into dukkha. Because yeah. the word du is D-U-S in Sanskrit. Like this. This word du has many, many connotations. It means something dirty, something unpleasant, something painful. Yeah. It had all of these connotations within it. And when we add the final bit to it, to get the word which actually was one of the elements of Indian society, which was dukkha, then the ka part was space. The word ka meant space. So dukkha was a dirty space. A dirty place to be in. An unpleasant space to be in. And was often used in ancient Vedic society to refer to the hole into which an axle fitted in a wheel. And the hole was filled with dirt and grease and grit and went round and round and round. Yeah. Uh, the other connotation of the word dukkha, again from ancient Vedic Sanskrit, this is nothing that the, dukkha, that the, the Buddha invents, this is what's there already, is of a wound inflicted by an arrow. You're being hit by an arrow and you pull out there and you're left with a gaping hole. There. So it has a sense of lack as well. Something which is superating too. Now, as you can see, this is why the word suffering simply does not do the word dukkha justice. <laughs> you know, no matter which way you want to look at it, um, you know, suffering is a very, very inadequate translation of this word dukkha. 
And I always say this to any Dharma groups I teach these days, I'd like to naturalize this word. So we don't have to go around explaining it all the time, what dukkha actually means, because it does not mean suffering. It means anything unpleasant or actually qualified by lack in your life. And perhaps just instead of getting away from the historical stuff, just a bit of Dharma teaching here for a second, direct Dharma teaching. Dukkha is what you're experiencing right now. Anything that you find you want to have changed at this moment in time as you sit there. As I drone on, it might be, oh God, when is he going to stop? <laughs> it might be, oh, I wish the chairs were a bit more comfortable. Or I wish it was a bit warmer or a bit sunnier or a bit cooler or whatever it might be. It's whatever's going on for you right now. Dukkha is not something happening in the future. Dukkha is what is going on for you right now. Yeah. Now, the ancient Vedic people did not use it in quite that way. That's very much what the Buddha does. He takes this distinct term which is found within the Vedas and he uses it in a particular way to describe a fundamental aspect of human existence. This is what he's doing. So he takes his starting point as something which is spoken about in Indian society and is seen as something to be moved away from, you know, Dukkha in experience, to go towards su, sukha, suastika, good life, a more blissful experience of, of life. Um, and he defines it quite differently, you know, how this comes about. Now, the avoidance of dukkha in ancient Vedic society was by the performance of rituals. There was an awful lot of belief in the efficacy of the performance of rituals. Now, I don't know how good you are on your parley, but let's test you for a second. Because rituals performed around the fire to keep everything going in the order it was expected to be kept in was actually, in Sanskrit, referred to as this. Yes, sanskara, or sankara in Pali. So a sankara was literally, as, a, as the word in a prakrit, the word sankara literally meant a religious ritual that you engaged in, or a habit that you engaged in. So you're engaging in sanskaras. I'm keeping the world going in its, in its order. Now, the performance of your rituals, you either did well or you did badly. Now, you either kept the gods happy or you didn't. The outcome of that, another very familiar word that you know. I'm going to do, and actually, even in more Pali circles, we tend to use the Sanskritic form of this, uh, which is this word. <laughs> so, if you performed it well, that was good karma. If you performed it badly, it was bad karma. Yeah. Now, that was all it meant. It was literally a kind of ritual, religious activity you engaged in in order to create you know, this cosmic harmony within the world. 
Now, this is the sort of thing that the Buddha is engaging in with this kind of language. However, before we get to that, I'm afraid I'm going to give you one more bit of the jigsaw puzzle before moving on to the Buddha's actual engagement with some of this stuff. Is that within a highly stratified society that I've described, and I've only described it as a kind of thumbnail sketch, within this highly stratified society, what do you get within anything that tries to keep an order in place? Dissidents. You get people who basically um, try to buck the system in some way to get out of that system. Well, in Indian society, they did that by running off to the forests. These were the first dropouts. (laughs) They were the first dropouts. And they had a different vision about what it was to lead a good life and to gain purity, to not be reborn in particular unpleasant circumstances. And this became, eventually, it became a set of literature which is very ancient. Some of it goes back to the time of the Buddha. In fact, the Buddha quotes it. And he deliberately misquotes it to make fun of it. And these are called Upanishads. Now, the Upanishads, and the word Upanishad literally means to draw close and to listen. So there are obviously teachings given by individual teachers, and actually if you go to these very ancient Upanishads, you'll find that's exactly what they are. They're teachings given by a particular teacher to a close group of disciples, usually within a forest setting. And interestingly, the first, well, the two major first Upanishads, the most ancient ones that we can date historically, are written, or well, composed, I keep saying written, they're composed, because this is an all oral at this, moment, at this period of time. They're composed roughly in the area where the Buddha lived. You know, Panchakosala. They lived in this area, in the forests of that area. So these would have been familiar to the Buddha, or this figure who we call the Buddha. They're familiar from that particular area. And the first one is called the Brihadaranyaka. Aranyaka is the Sanskrit word for forest. So it's literally a composition of the forest. Interestingly, you're saying a breakup of society because these are the dropouts. But you find that just a few occasions in these early texts, particularly in the Brihadaranyaka, you find that there is a, a few women teachers occurring in it. Not many, but you get a few popping up within it. So these are the dropouts. They have a different vision about Indian society. They pick up on some late metaphysical stuff within the Vedic tradition. They're more interested in knowing what future rebirths are going to be like, what it is that drives that mechanism of rebirth, or actually reincarnation rather than rebirth in this instance. And they speculate about the nature of the universe, and they speculate about the nature of the human individual and its relationship with the nature of the universe. And two major terms that they come up with... I'll do this without getting up again. Two major terms they come up with is this, Brahman, which describes the 
nature of whatever is, everything is considered to be a one taste, and they call that Brahman. And Brahman comes from a word to expand, to be expansive. And within the individual, the word Atman, which was of the same nature of Brahman. It was a little bit, if you like, of the universal within the individual. This was the whole idea. Both of these were considered to be unchanging, fixed. All change was considered a word within the Upanishads that you very rarely get in Indian Sanskritic Buddhist texts. They were considered to be Maya. Maya, this word which means illusion. The real was considered to be unchanging. Anything that was changing was unreal. So the phenomenal world that we inhabit was unreal. Now, some of these texts, probably the first, the Brihadaranyaka was probably composed between 600 and 650 BCE. So it's earlier than the Buddha. And it's coming up with these terms. Interestingly enough, within Greek society, you're getting similar ideas coming up. You know, by the time you get to Plato, Socrates, you're getting the idea of speculation about the nature of the real. And the real was considered to be that which didn't change. And if you like, throughout the history of Eastern and Western thought, there has, as Nietzsche says in one of his works, been a, a sort of revenge against time. anything that was within time is considered to be unreal and only that which doesn't change is considered to be real Plato and Socrates do it in their own way by putting the real into a metaphysical reality and in fact in Indian society these are the metaphysical realities of Indian society Brahman is defined as pure consciousness in some of the um, Upanishadic texts Atman is described as that which is pure consciousness. The whole kind of movement within Upanishadic thinking was to reunite Atman with Brahman, or see the lack of difference between the two. Um, And you find this pursued through the whole Advaita tradition, which is based on these readings. I would actually say in later Buddhism, these ideas infect later Buddhism as well. And I use that term deliberately. Because they are basically Brahmanical later Hindu ideas that reinsert themselves into, into the development of Buddhist thought and philosophy at some point in time. But that will be for later. <laughs> we'll get to that. At this point in time, well, I think all you really have to really understand is that these are the two metaphysical rea- realities that are being spoken about. This one, of course, is the one that the Buddha is going to deliberately attack. Yeah. Whenever I, he basically, almost paraphrasing David Hume, when he says, you know, I can't actually find within my experience anything that is unchanging. Yeah. Any one fixed point that I could access empirically. Yeah. Now, this is the doctrine of anatta. Yeah. Literally not 
self, not no self. And I just want to make a point, a plea really, to hear it as what is not self. Not that there is no self. What is not self? There's a lot hangs on one little English consonant here. (laughs) Because there's a huge difference between no and not in this. Uh, and again, I'll return to that when we get to the Buddha's examination of you know, his, again, critiquing of these ideas as they occur. Now, before we go on any further, let me give you a flavour of what was going on in the latter Vedic period that gave rise to these Upanishadic texts. Um, and this is probably the most famous one. The Buddha actually, again, uses this. He uses this in a particular text called the Aganya Sutta, uh, which is in the Diganakaya, in the Long Discourses of the Buddha. Um, and again, you'll find elements of it misquoted deliberately um, to make fun of it. Because this is actually called The Poem of Creation. The Aganya Sutta is a huge joke by the Buddha that the Theravadan tradition takes literally. Because yeah. they've forgotten the context in which the joke was made, which was actually attacking this particular piece of um, Vedic literature here. Now, this, let me read it to you. I think it's the best idea. You'll get the flavor. It's not that long. Let me just read this to you. There was neither existence nor non-existence then, neither the world nor the sky that lies beyond it. What lay enveloped and where? And who gave it protection? Was water there deep and unfathomable? Notice the series of questions. There was no death then, nor immortality, nor of night or day was there any sign. The one, this is Brahman, the one breathed airless by self-impulse. Other than that was nothing whatsoever. Darkness was concealed by darkness there, and all of this was indiscriminate chaos. That one which had been covered by the void through the might of tapas. Tapas is the Sanskrit word. It's not really a direct translation, which is why I didn't translate it on this. Tapas is the, the fire behind creation, the fire behind the cosmos. It was used in yoga. Some of you might know this through yoga. The word tapas means austerity, that which literally burns up impurity. Through the might of tapas was manifested. In the beginning, there was desire which was the primal germ of all minds. For the sages searching in their hearts with wisdom found in the non-existence the kin of existence. Their dividing line extended transversely what was below it and what was above it. There was the seed bearer, there were the mighty forces, there was impulse from below, forward movement from beyond. Who really knows and who can declare it here Whence was it born and whence came this creation? The devas are much later than this world's production. Then who knows from where it came into being? That from which this creation came into being, perhaps it formed itself, or perhaps it did not. He who surveys it in the highest region, only he truly knows it, or maybe he doesn't. It's an open series of questions. 
in many senses, but all based in the origin of the universe, in the origin of creation. Now, <clears throat> one particular scholar um, has actually looked at this poem in a great deal of depth of the Vedic Sanskrit and mapped onto it the 12 links of dependent origination. Yeah. Again, the Buddha is playing with something that predates him, not actually inventing anything, but giving it his own spin, actually turning it into a teaching tool for something else to be said. This is the way, and I'm really going to say this, and I've said it quite a number of times throughout the day, but this is really the way that you should hear the Buddha's teaching. It's in relationship, obviously, to all this cultural stuff, which I'm only giving you a very brief taste of. It's in relationship to all of this cultural stuff, but it's in relationship to turning away from the metaphysical and bringing it to the actual, to what and where we actually live. Yeah. One of the things that I don't think the Buddha is up to at all in his teaching, and actually that's the way what we refer to as Buddhism is actually considered within traditional cultures, it's not Buddhism, it's Dharma or it's the Sasana. It's the teaching or the way things are. Yeah. This is what the teaching is. Yeah. It's not an ism in that sense. So, what he's doing is he's trying to take it out of consolatory metaphysics. Anything that will bring you consolation but isn't rooted in this world at all. In fact, in many suttas, he said we stray outside of our habitat the moment we start to look to metaphysical explanations for things. We literally get nowhere. There's a very famous text in the Diganakaya again, which is known, some of you might know it, called the Tivija Sutta. And again, this is a sutta that points up really the uselessness of the metaphysical. In fact, in one particular instance, it's described as a staircase to a house being built at a crossroad with no house around it. And it's just going up into the sky and goes nowhere. Yeah. Literally goes nowhere. So, this is his critique of the metaphysical. Now, this is all based on the kind of societal understandings that he, he inherits. Now, it's quite clear when we go through the Pali Canon and we do it with this kind of more cultural, linguistic, historical eye that so much of what the Buddha is saying maps on directly to stuff which is there already within the, either the Vedic tradition or within the Upanishadic tradition. Here's the, 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 the dropouts as I describe them, well, they have a name. They're called Shramaneras. Yeah. What does the Buddha do? He forms an order of Samanas or Shramaneras. These Shramaneras of the um, Upanishadic tradition, probably the kinds of people, the, you know, even the, um, kind of the mythology we have behind the Buddha's life, um, these are the kinds of people he would have probably studied with initially. These would have been Shramanera traditions. There would have been yoga traditions of some form or another. 
the tapas, the austerities, these were all part of these yoga traditions. So this is the kind of stuff that the Buddha inherits. Yeah. Actually, I want to question that word as well, Buddha. The word never occurs in any of the texts. Have you noticed that? Yeah. Ever. Yeah. That word is a later appellation. Again, it's applied to somebody. Yeah. Now, let me just say something about the biography of the Buddha to try and situate him in relationship to this material. Well, let's say the biography of the Buddha is not a biography. The biography is more, in Western terms, what we refer to as a hagiography. It's much more like something like a biography of the saints in Christianity, which tells you something important about what it is to be a Christian and to I don't know, suffer martyrdom or what it might be in this than it ever tells you about the actual life of the person. Interestingly, when we look through the Pali Canon, what biographical details do we find of the Buddha? Virtually none. You know, the most biographical information that you'll find generally is situated in the Majjhimanakaya, in the middle-length discourses, in a discourse which is known as the Arya Paresana, which is the noble search. You know, the sutta of the noble search. There he gives a little bit of information about his own background, about training with two Brahmanical teachers there, because it relates to something he wants to say. Now, we can probably believe these. There's absolutely no reason for these bits to be there. Yeah. They don't actually add a tremendous amount. Um, so actually, the small bits of biography we have in the canon are probably accurate. Yeah. They are not excised, and they don't do anything, they don't lend anything. But the full-blown mythology, which I'm sure you're all familiar with, of the Buddha's life is exactly that. It's a mythology. The first biography was written of the Buddha 500 years after he died. It's something written by somebody called Ashwagosra, you know, the Buddha Charita, which is a Sanskrit text um, just on the cusp, really, of the development of the Mahayana as, as a fully-blown movement. And there we see changes starting to occur to the nature of the figure of this figure, the person who we call the Buddha in this. Now, when we go back to the early texts and this you know, kind of engagement with his society, what do we find? We find a very, very different figure from the mythology. Yeah. Now, what is interesting about, and I would encourage you to go out and read Pali and learn Pali, because um, what you get a sense of when you look at it in the original is, is somebody who has a personality. You know, a distinct personality. He makes jokes. Yeah. They, jokes don't come across very well in English. In, you know, uh, he puns. A you know, classic way of making a joke or making a point. He puns between words that are found in Sanskrit and their derivations in Pali you know, to make points. Again, usually at the disparagement of the early tradition, which is there. So what he is doing, what he's engaged in, let's put it at one level, let me put it in one level what he's doing. What he's engaging in is a, a deep level of social critique and ethical critique of his society. Yeah. Now, you, you probably, most of you know, or if not all of you know, one of the critiques he's making is at this stratification of the society. Yeah. People considering themselves to be noble or aria by birth. 
Now, you see this within India to this day. As I say, I referred to this earlier on. This has been so intractable through the history of India, this idea that there is this purity that runs through the element of society which you're born into. The Buddha completely engages with that and tries to get people to see that actually being a Brahmin has nothing to do with birth but everything to do with virtue, with activity, with the actions that you actually engage in. How you comport yourself in your daily lives. This shows whether you're a Brahmin or not. Now, if you take a text like the Dhammapada, then you find, of course, that the Brahmin is used to refer to, often almost synonymously, to the bhikkhu. To the bhikkhu who has achieved arahatship. Somebody who's actually achieved something. So the Brahmin is one who's really achieved something by virtue of what they do in their ordinary life. So he's engaging in this deep, deep critique. And he does this across the board in every element of society. And I think we're at the very early stages of doing this, both from, I think, from a, what I call a Dharma practitioner's level and from a scholarly level, of beginning to examine how deeply across the board this goes. This. Even, and I was actually talking with Tony as he picked me up from the airport yesterday, I was even saying that even four noble truths, and that's a bad translation of it anyway, of Arya Satya, <laughs> is a joke. Yeah. It's a joke directed at Brahmanical society. Yeah. Arya Satya, well, Arya noble. Satya, truth. Well, it's ambiguous, actually, in Pali, the word Satya. It can mean truth, and Satya, the Sanskrit version of it, is what the Brahmins refer to as the truth of the Vedas. Yeah, but Satya can mean just what is, or existence. That something is. So these are the noble isnesses. <laughs> and what the noble isnesses turn out to be are not the you know, kind of immutable truths of the Vedas and of the Brahmins, the noble ones who hold them sacred, but here's your immutable truth or isness. Dukkha. So he's taken it again from the metaphysical and placed it in the real. Now they look, in other words, outward for signs within what later became the texts of Brahmanism, but in those days with the oral tradition. They look for it outwardly in those sayings of the rishis and the kavyas, the the, the poets and the rishis who supposedly invented this stuff. And it's all based in metaphysics, and it's based in the metaphysics of the gods, of the devas, and the rituals that performed around it. And the Buddha brings it right back and says, you are experiencing dukkha. That's your nobility. Now, this word Arya Satcha, as well, this phrase, actually, that's appended much later, <coughs> word Arya Satcha. Yeah. The uh, ex-professor of Middle Indo-Aryan dialects at uh, Cambridge, that shows you how esoteric this is, <laughs> um, Roy Norman once said, out of all the possible translations of this term, 
Now, I remember hearing him say this. All the possible translations of the term Arya Satya, four noble truths is about the worst. <laughs> now, that's almost inscribed in, in our kind of Buddhism, isn't it? Yeah, this is where we start, four noble truths. Well, actually, one way of translating this, again, which I think takes it much more into the pragmatic, is ennobling truths. Ennobling. Yeah. It's that which we're ennobled by inquiring into. So if we inquire into dukkha, yes, we can seek nobility. The nobility of the Brahmin. Yeah, but not by birth, again. But through the nature of our inquiry into it. We find it in the ennobling action of discerning the cause or discerning the origin of dukkha by actually beginning to realize its possibility of stopping. Dukkha niroda, the third so-called truth. The word niroda is a fascinating word as well in Pali. Um, The word literally in Pali means to stop leaking. (laughs) (laughs) I know, I think, I think it brings up kind of whole unedifying um, images. <laughs> Which it's meant to. <laughs> it's a kind of incontinence <laughs> that where everybody is suffering from. It's <laughs> I'm sorry, it's, it's there in the, in the text, this is not just me. <laughs> Uh, it's, it's this image of leaking inconstantly the asavas and everything that's derived from the asavas. You know, the fetters, the hindrances. Everything that we leak out into the world. Now, just to, just to give you a little, you know, because that word literally doesn't mean leaking, but it can mean cessation. But it means, actually, it was what was done, again, it's the use the Buddha made of language because he was speaking to ordinary people. Now, if you, want, you know, if you don't want to lose all the goodness and all the nutrients <coughs> out of a paddy field, you've got to shore it up. That act of shoring it up was called niroda, to stop it from leaking. So you don't lose, actually, all of the fertilizer, which would probably be animal manure that would have been placed in it, which is literally like the crap that's placed in it, to stop it from leaking out. Well, we're stopping the leaking of the crap in a different way. <laughs> you know, by, you know, by visuddhi, by purity. Again, a word that's used in the text, but in a different way from the Brahmins would use about purity. Yeah. And finally, this ennobling activity is by walking away. I prefer the word way or way-making to the word path. Path seems to be a straight line, a route march from from A to B. And often, unfortunately, because of the linear structure of what we refer to as the Eightfold Path, it looks like I take this route march from from, from view to kind of mindfulness and concentration and all the rest of it. It isn't that. It's a complete interaction and interweaving of all of these eight aspects to actually make our way through the world. 
there's been a very good point made recently. You could actually even reverse the structure of the Eightfold Path and make the way making the way of making yours understand the Dukkha. You can actually do that as well. So, we've got to this point now where we're beginning to look at the engagement and how this pans out in the way the Buddha's actually beginning to say things. I think I ought to pause and see if there's any kind of questions, because I, as I say, I don't want this to become a complete monologue. Well, first and then... It's gone the wrong way. It doesn't matter. So you say the word uh, Buddha is not really in the uh, <clears throat> canon at all? No. And that the Buddha referred to himself as the Tathagata? The Tathagata, yeah. So when does that word come? How does... It just means to awake, right? Tathagata? No, Buddha. Oh, Buddha. Buddha means awakened one. That's all. So when in history does someone come up with the word Buddha? Because the Buddha didn't even use the word Buddha. No, he doesn't use the word Buddha. Buddha is again part of um, Brahmanical society. So it would be referred to, it, it would get, the word Buddha would be used to refer to a seer in Brahmanical society. So I think it's, a, again, an application of, a, of a, a piece of wording that's occurring at a much later period to kind of authenticate this figure who we now call the Buddha within a tradition which places him firmly back in Indian culture. Now, the thing I would actually begin to say, and I hope you could, at least even with what I've said so far, is get a little bit of a perspective on this. I think the Buddha is far more radical than the character who's come down to us. He's actually far more radical than that. And by actually even using the word Buddha, I think we, in a, even in that way, sometimes de-radicalize him. Although... I would often in my Dharma teaching, in my straightforward Dharma teaching, I actually say one of the good things about the word Buddha is it offers us a challenge. Because if the Buddha is an awakened one, then it means we're fast asleep. That's actually what defines sangsaric or circular behavior is a kind of sleepwalking. Whereas the, the figure who we refer to as the Buddha has woken up to the way things are. That's the character of his awakening. Now, in Vedic terms, Buddha would have been somebody who had woken up to the truths of the Vedas, to the truths of the Upanishads and that. But it's a, it's a later appellation, basically, is what I'm claiming. Yeah. And this awakening process is actually, there's nothing to actually do. It's sort of, a, of an act of seeing or an act of recognition. I think awakening is not... Um, actually, how would I put this? I would actually say awakening is process rather than big bang. You know, it's, this is not striking light on the road to Damascus stuff. This is little mini awakenings. You know, we wake up from time to time and then fall back to sleep. You know, this is what goes on. The more you can, can keep this prolongation of that process, of awakening is what characterizes, I think, a figure who would be referred to as a Buddha or an Arahant or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So it's an ongoing process. I don't think it's an, it's an end. You know, again, I think there's a big metaphysics behind this. We want to see the kind of Nibbana as a big place to end up at. Nibbana is, well, as I've often said, and I know Tony's quoted me on this, Nibbana is a verb. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I'll say much more about this as we go through. Yeah. 
There was this gentleman over here, too. You, uh, you pointed out the, uh, how one uh, Hindu area would be very different in their practices and beliefs from Hindus in another area. Yeah. I'm wondering about, and abstractly, would they all unite in kind of the belief of oneness of God, love of God, or would they all accept a saint like Ramakrishna, or would they differ even on that level? They differ in all of that. I mean, if you look at the uh, Hinduism as it's come down to us, the kind of classic, what they call the Astika um, tradition, which is those who are within the six major philosophies of Hindu, Hinduism. Actually, very few of them are theistic. Yeah. So, for example, Sankhya Yoga, Sankhya tradition, the Sankhya tradition, which is a very ancient tradition, probably goes back to just after the Buddha's death, the Sankhya tradition does not have a concept of a theistic god within it at all. This wasn't unusual in ancient India, by the way. Um, theism as we know it, the kind of more monotheistic type ideas, only start to evolve much, much later. So by the time you get to a figure like Ramakrishna in the 19th century, who you're talking about, well, this has been interfused with so much um, Christianity and... Um, some kinds of Advaita thinking, which also are very much theistically oriented. But in the early traditions, there's not that much. Even the Buddha's main rival, the Buddhist, you know, the Buddhist tradition's main rival in the early years was Jainism, or Jainism as we kind of anglicize it. But Jainism is, again, an, a, doesn't have a god within it. Yeah. So that whole idea of theism is a much, much later idea yeah, in Indian thought. So the Buddha was radical, but not that radical in that sense about that. Uh, would um, dissatisfaction be a better word for dukkha than suffering? Dissatisfaction is a better word for it, but is it, how would I put it? I, I think dissatisfaction is a little flabby in English. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but it does cover it, you know. Um, I can't actually... This is why I say I think we, in, in Dharma circles, I think there ought to be much more of a naturalization of the word dukkha. Once we begin to understand it, then it ought to be used as opposed to any English word, one English word for it. Because I actually... I was doing this with a group quite recently, um, uh, teaching a retreat, and I was trying to define dukkha, and I came up with 32 words in English that would probably cover some aspect of dukkha. And then I said, you can add to them. Those would be things like dis-ease. Dis yeah. uh, That's right. Irritation. Yeah. Um, lack of contentment. Yearning. Yearning striving. Yeah. Lack. Yeah. <laughs> you can come up with an enormous um, lexicon of words that would cover this. Uh, and really, if you think about it, it's, it's a spectrum word. Yeah, that's why I say dissatisfaction sounds a little flabby, because in a way it does include suffering. It really does include tragedy and loss and all of these things that every human being is going to experience in their lives and the aging process and all of these things, which can be real suffering and sickness. But it's also that minor irritation. Yeah. As I, again, often describe in my um, more retreat situation where I teach. I had this uh, beautiful description of it once um, by Ling Rinpoche, who was actually the, Buddha's, uh, the, the Dalai Lama's senior tutor. And I had to, to, 
quite a number of teachings with him uh, when I was in India. And he said that Dukkha was like this. He said it wasn't like being stabbed. It wasn't really sharp and painful. It was like slowly rubbing your arm against a brick wall. (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't start off that painful either. But you keep on doing it. You know, it gets more and more and more painful as we do it. But yeah, it's it, dissatisfaction is okay. It's, it's, but I have as many problems probably with that as with suffering. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I think Tony's going around. Yeah, and then yeah. Yeah. yeah uh, it, uh, probably. Buddha delivered his uh, talk uh, in one of the uh, uh, northern Indian dialect of his time. And when was Pali language available, or written language was developed? <clears throat> okay. Perhaps I'll say something about just about Pali in general. Well, the first thing, as I think many of you will know, if not all of you, is that the Buddha did not speak Pali. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He spoke a northern Indian dialect. He probably spoke a number of them, actually, not even one. Because when we go through the Pali, you can find dialect words from other Prakrits, other Indian languages in there. Um, If you go around that area of northern India where the Buddha taught, even to this day, if you go from village to village, sometimes they will have their own vocabularies within those villages. Now, I think because the Buddha's talking in a, a fairly circumscribed area, he probably knows a lot of these dialect words and is using them. So, Pali was an attempt at a later period, the period of the compilation of what we now know as the texts, to find a homogenized language, one language that would encompass all of those different um, dialects that he's using at that stage. Now, strictly speaking, again, it's a Middle Indo-Aryan dialect. Uh, it's a Prakrit. So it's closely related to um, spoken languages. So it reflects the idioms of spoken languages, particularly the Nikayas. If you look at Buddha Ghost, it doesn't. You know, that's a much later form of Pali. But the Pali of the Nikayas is very much a, a spoken language stuff. Now, it doesn't get written down until the first century BCE. You know, the end of the first century BCE. It's written down in Sri Lanka. Up until that point, it's been an oral transmission of the material. Up till that point. In what language was teaching transmitted orally for 500 years? Then? That would have been Pali. It would have been Pali. It would have been a way they would have homogenized the dialects. So they would have found a way. The only way to think about Pali, it's a, it's a strange thing, is if you're trying to reflect... I'm trying to give you an, think of an example. Well, an example I can think of in terms of in English literature, let me give you one in terms of English literature, it might sound something similar, is that Charles Dickens in his works often tries to reflect, say, uh, London dialects. Yeah. Now, the way that it's written isn't exactly the way a Londoner would speak, but it very, very closely reflects it. Yeah. And I think that is what's going on with Pali. So it's a way of recording the Buddha's speech. And that's happening and taking place probably very, very soon after the Buddha's death. You know, that way of recording his, his speech. So it's, it's 
recorded speech as opposed to direct speech that's being used there. And the written stuff is simply the formalization of that. One more question. Uh, you said awakening is more of a process and, uh, rather than Big Bang. What about enlightenment? Not a word I ever use. <laughs> <laughs> enlightenment, I don't... I, it's, again, it's a 19th century word that's used. Um, I mean, I, 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 must have said, I must admit to my own prejudices here because... I don't actually like the word enlightenment at all. I think the word awakening is actually, A, it's much more linguistically accurate to the term which is being used, which is the, it's linked to the word bodhi, you know, which means to wake, to awake uh, here. So the awakening is a process. I actually think even in, from a scholarly point of view, but even a practical sense, that is actually what it's about. As I was saying to this gentleman over here, you know, this process of waking up, is what we're trying to do. It's not as if, you know, enlightenment still sounds to me big bang. Yeah. 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 And also, one final comment about it, awake, uh, enlightenment is what occurred in the West in the 18th century. <laughs> 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 yeah, not what occurred to you know, the figures in the Buddhist tradition. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of historical stuff in there too. This gentleman here's got the microphone down too. Thanks. Uh, I just wondered if during this series of talks if you have something to say. It's green. Okay. Just need to speak a little Sorry. <laughs> During your talk sometime, will you uh, have anything to say about why the, ten, the eightfold path was chosen over the tenfold path? This has been a problem I've had for some time about it. The tenfold path seems to make a great deal more sense than the eightfold path. <laughs> tenfold path, well, uh, that's not really canonically substantiated. As a, well, it is in one of the sutras. Yeah, you know, it is in one, but you know, some of these things, I think, some of the things are often added. I mean, I'll say more about that process that goes on because um, that's something which occurs throughout the history of the development of the canon, that things start to get added. Now, I don't want to suggest that everything I dislike is added. <laughs> but some things are clearly added, and you can see that they are, because they're coming again from Brahmanical society and being added back in. Um, the majority of what goes on in the canon is the eightfold path, not the tenfold path. Um, but you do find variants. You do find variants. It's often the frequency with which something occurs, which often is the validation of it. Um, often its idiosyncraticness is often a validation of its accuracy. If it doesn't actually correspond with something that's further in and being kind of also homogenized within it, often, from a scholarly point of view, it's actually that's a place to look quite closely because you're probably getting to something um, quite accurate. As you know, a friend and colleague of mine in Oxford once said, you know, uh, Richard Gombrich, he said, you know, if a man can walk and talk for 45 years and not contradict himself at some point, <laughs> you know, and that's exactly what the Buddha was doing, was teaching for 45 years and change his mind about some of his ideas, then actually looking at some of these differences within the canon are actually quite interesting, of highlighting often the way the Buddha changes his mind about things. 
One particular thing, I mean, I'll say this right at the very beginning here, one thing, particular thing he changes his mind about is a, a kind of settled monastic tradition. He has no inkling in the earliest texts of a settled monastic tradition. In fact, he doesn't even recommend monks should travel together. You know, he says that two monks traveling together are like bracelets on a woman's arm. They simply jangle. <laughs> yeah. So he does change his mind on a lot of things, but no, I'm not going to mention that directly because I think that's one of those things which is, is not so canonically substantiated. Thank you very much. I appreciated your comment about the Buddha's attempt to take metaphysics and actualize it. Mm -hmm. I found it very actually heartwarming into the real. So, of course, this whole conversation could be is very metaphysical. And the danger of metaphysics is... You know, when you get in the higher ionosphere, is to <clears throat> become lightheaded, to and not come back, and you know, become unreal in mm. your metaphysics. So metaphysics is always there. And there's a great quote. Maybe you can help me with the source of it. Uh, all acts presuppose philosophy, and all po philosophy engenders acts. It's a great quote. Mm. Uh, because whatever you do, you're driving your convertible down the street and enjoying a certain way of life, there's a philosophy behind that. Yeah. You know, as opposed to living as a, a bhikkhu yeah. or even coming here. So metaphysics is there. That's, you know, yeah. we're thinking animals. <clears throat> uh, so if you just comment about what the role of metaphysics, you know, but again, I, the fact to actualize that, I find that very heartwarming, which is a, a, a signature of Buddhism itself. Yeah, I, I, th I think that one of the main things that the Buddha is really getting us to become acutely aware of is that whole process of where we begin to think outside of the actual. Every moment we start to think outside of the actual. I mean, one of your great American philosophers, William James, you know, once said even common sense is the metaphysics of the masses. Common sense is the metaphysics of the masses. Because basically what it takes in is assumptions about the way things are. And so whenever there are assumptions, now those assumptions are not actually questioned a lot of the time. A lot of our thinking is guided, for example, by language. Now, and I think all this stuff I was going on about the Buddha's playing with language of his own time and often punning with it and doing various things with it is again to highlight how language will lead you in a particular direction. Um, none more so, actually, both in Sanskrit, Pali and English as the language around the self. You know, the fact that Buddha doesn't cease, of course, to use the first-person pronoun in it what he ceases to do is believe in the first-person pronoun. Yeah. Um, and that's a question that's often gone on in even Western thought you know, um, over the centuries, really, even, really up to quite recently. I mean, even Wittgenstein, you know, the Austrian philosopher in the 1950s, is saying, he says it in Philosophical Investigations, he says, I have the strange feeling that the self is merely a, a, a grammatical problem. You know? You know, because it's actually, you know, because of the way we form sentences, it has to have a subject. Um, we believe that the subject is a real subject. You know, it actually exists. You know, we say, I am happy, I am sad, as if there's a substantiality to the I. 
Now, it just might be a product of the way we form English sentences, that we have to have that grammatical subject. But some sentences we are not misled by, as I often try to point out. You know, it is raining. What's the it? <laughs> or where is it? <laughs> um, so I think it's really kind of... I think what the Buddha is really trying to do is get us to engage very intensively with our assumptions, our ways of being misled by language, our ways of being misled by tradition, our ways of being misled by authority, all of these things. So it's a really, really deep investigation and inquiry that we're engaged in. An inquiry, as I would put it, into the actual. That's what we're inquiring, into the actuality of our lives. There is a a sutta in the Sangyutta Nikaya, as some of you again might know, it's called the Ruhatasa Sutta. And it's there, um, a deva comes to question the Buddha. Why a deva? A deva is a god here. Well, the deva's coming to question. I think, again, this is the way... I think it's probably a story the Buddha's told rather than an actual thing. It's being included as an actuality. This deva comes to question the Buddha and there's a whole section of the Sangyutta Kaya called the Deva Sangyutta, which is all these devas coming to question the Buddha. What he's trying to do? Well, he's trying to parody and make fun of the idea of gods for a start off. Because the gods are actually coming to have to ask the Buddha a question. And the question is about finding the end of the world. He said, I've been walking forever and cannot find the end of the world. I've travelled hither and thither to find the end of the world. But I still can't find the end of the world. The end of the world of dukkha and suffering. And the Buddha said, you will not find the end of dukkha by travelling. By only by being in this body, or as he calls it, the fathom-long carcass. Yeah. The, end of the, the origin of the world and the end of the world is to be found within this fathom-long carcass. Nowhere else. Yeah. Now, again, that fathom-long carcass, I mean, I'm kind of using questions actually to add on to some of the things I'm saying. Fathom-long carcass. What's that all about? Well, A, obviously it's the physical body, but actually when the Brahmins were performing rituals, they would draw a figure of a human being in the earth which represented the cosmos. And the Brahmins were saying that this figure represented the cosmos and that was where all truth was to be found. Metaphysics, again, in the cosmos, with the gods and everything else. Now the Buddha says this fathom-long carcass, endowed as it is with its eyes, its ears, its nose, and everything else, that's where it's to be found. This is where we find liberation, awakening, not in some, again, metaphysical unreality. He also says, interestingly, in this other sutta, which is, I think it's in the Anguttara, isn't it? No, it's in the Sangyutta. He says in this little um, sutta, I think it's the the, the sutta of the hawk and the quail, um, he says that, you know, when we stray outside of our natural habitat, just like an animal that strays outside of its natural habitat, it encounters danger. 
And that's when we start to go off into metaphysical thinking. That's when we become in a dangerous situation. We're ungrounded. We are literally not grounded in anything we can know. So the teaching is always to bring us back into the known and the knowable, not into that which cannot be known. Just as a good, it's a good little thing to do in a day. Just think how often our thought strays off into some kind of metaphysical thinking which isn't grounded in what we actually know, which is in a belief, a projection, a supposition. Yeah? Our thinking is doing this all the time. So when we hear metaphysics, we don't have to think of big metaphysical, religious or philosophical systems. We can think of just when does our thought become ungrounded yeah. in that which is an actuality that can be smelt, taste, touched and, touched and known in this way. Sorry, that was a long answer to a short question. <laughs> Maybe we can... Uh, is people interested in taking a, a stretch Yeah, I think that's probably a good idea. Stretch break? Why, don't we, why don't we do just uh, something short, like 10 minutes, and come back at 11.15? Yep. Yeah.